0: Our scripture text this morning is from Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 through 14. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. An un, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant."
1: Growing up, we my family would always take trips to Panama City, Florida. That was kind of like our family vacation every year. And one of the things we really liked to do was go putt-putt after dinner. And there was this one putt-putt place that like had right next to the putt-putt this maze that you could just kind of wander into. And so I had two guy cousins, and we were really competitive with each other, and so we would try to race through this maze. It was the same maze every year. We never got any better at it. But one of the things that's interesting about mazes, or challenging about mazes, is you can be making a lot of progress, you keep making the right turns, and then you get a long ways in, you finally hit a dead end, and you have to figure out, how far back do I have to go to get back onto the right path? And I think in a lot of ways, that's what we've seen from Abram throughout the past few chapters. He's taking guesses. He's trying to move forward with following God's promise. And he keeps running into dead ends as he makes wrong decisions. This morning, as we look at Genesis 17, we're going to see God giving Abraham the bird's eye view of the maze. That, that was the easy way to make it through the maze was to see it from above, to know where the dead ends were and to avoid them. And that's what God is going to do for Abram in this chapter. So this opens, we read that Abram is 99 years old. That means it's been 24 years since Abram was called out of his father's household in Ur. Back in chapter 12, God said, I will make of you a great nation. In verse 7 of chapter 12, he says, to your offspring, I will give this land. In chapter 15, Abram's faith in God and, and the confidence in his promises is faltering. And so God gives him another part of this promise. He says, Your very own son shall be your heir. And God tells him his offspring will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And yet, Abram is still unsure about how this promise is going to come about. Last week in chapter 16, We saw that he and his wife Sarah still have not had a child, and so they seek to find a shortcut. Abram tries to get a son with Sarah's servant Hagar. He hopes that that is the child that God has promised him, and he finds out that he's wrong again. Hagar looks with contempt at Sarai after she is pregnant, and then Sarai rebukes Abram. And since that scene, just a couple of verses back, it's been 13 years. Ishmael is growing up. He's 13, he's about to uh, enter into manhood and they're still waiting. Is this, is this the reason that you called me out of my father's household? You, you've made me these promises. Is this all that I'm going to receive? Will Sarai have a child or will Ishmael be the heir? Now, I think these are probably the questions swirling in Abram's head as he's been waiting now for over a decade. We, we've got no record that he's heard anything else from God in the past 13 years. And that's when God steps in to give clarity to his plans. So, as we walk through chapter 17, we're going to take this in in four acts. The first act is the promise and the sign, clarification, and obedience. Promise, sign, clarification, and obedience. So, we'll start the first part of this in verses 1 to 8. God makes a promise. The Lord says to Abram, I am God almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Here's the critical part of that promise. It is God who makes the covenant. Like we saw back in chapter 15, God passes through the halves of the animals. Uh, Tom talked about that. That is God saying that he is the one who will keep his covenant here we see God doing the same thing. That phrase, my covenant, God says that nine times in this chapter. He's making very clear. I am the one who has made this covenant and I am the one who will ensure that it is brought to completion. For the past 24 years, Abram has been treating it like a riddle that he had to solve. If I put this in the right place, will I finally get access? There's no solving to be done. God is laying out the plan for him. The first step in this plan is God gives Abram a new name. The three times in this chapter, God gives names to his people. And that name change, I think, communicates a lot. It's not a small thing. It's not just going to help us as we preach, not to keep mixing up Abram and Abraham. It's communicating two specific things. First, changing Abram's name to Abraham communicates God's authority and his faithfulness. So kings would often change the names of their subjects. Uh, Guys, we studied Daniel back in the fall. When Nebuchadnezzar brings Daniel and his friends into captivity, he gives them Babylonian names. He says, you are my people. You will go by the names that I give you, and I have the authority to give you this name. I think in a similar way, that's what God is doing here. He's saying, Abraham, I am your God, and you will be my subject that language comes right there in verse seven. The Lord says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Don't read over that phrase to be God to you without catching the weight and significance of that promise. God is promising to be God to Abraham. Jeremiah picks up on this language in chapter 32 of Jeremiah. He says, uh, he's, he's speaking on God's part. He says, I will give them, or sorry, starting back a little further than that. They shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way for their own good and the good of their children after them. And I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing them good. I will rejoice in doing them good with all my heart and all my soul. Just stop for a second and consider that, that if you are a Christian, this promise is to you, that God is God to you. And Jeremiah says that he will never cease to do good to you. With all his heart and soul, he works to do you good. rejoices to do you good. I think it's good for us to bask in the glory of these kinds of promises. The second part of this name change is it's also communicating that Abraham will be fruitful. So we've seen the authority and the faithfulness. We're also going to see fruitfulness. The promise made here is that Abraham is going to be the father of a multitude of nations. That's Not dramatically different from the promises in 12 and 15, but it is a clarification or an amplification of the promise. He will not only have offspring and land, and he will not only have offspring that are as numerous as the stars in the sky, but his offspring will constitute a multitude of nations and that there will be kings from his offspring that will rule over those nations in the land that he will give them. I was thinking about that, that language, that, that kings will come from this line. And I remember reading 1 Samuel as a recently new Christian and thinking, okay, so God, or Israel says, we want a king just like the other nations. And God says, you know, they've rejected me as their king, so I'll give them a king. And it always sort of seemed like that was God's backup plan. Like God was, okay, fine. If you don't want me to be king, we'll find somebody else for a while and we'll get back to this. But Right here, it's in Genesis 17. God always promised that he would give kings to the nations. We see that first in David, who is of the line of Abraham when he ascends to the throne. But this culminates ultimately in in Jesus, the, the Messiah, who after rising from the dead ascends and is seated on a throne to reign as king forever that promise is made thousands of years before Jesus's birth. And yet Jesus is the one through whom it is finally and ultimately fulfilled that there would be a king on the throne from Abraham's descendants. And I think if if you think about those two parts of this name change, that's a really big promise that God is giving to Abraham. It's been a long time of waiting, a long delay, Sarah and he are increasing in age. I think it's reasonable that he would be thinking, it's gonna be really hard for this promise to come true. And particularly based on the last four chapters that we've read, there's no reason that he should think that he would be able to figure this out on his own. He's constantly been guessing and shooting in the wrong direction. So what is it that God is doing here? I think when God is making this promise, He's making it clear, and this delay is making it clear, that this promise will only be fulfilled by God. H- how does he identify himself back in verse 1? He is God Almighty, El Shaddai. There's not a... Uh, the, it, the, the fact that they would have had a child even when Sarai was 65, back when they were in Ur, would have been shocking. She's now almost 90. This is miraculous to even expect that a child could come. But Abraham has good reason to believe this promise because God isn't the semi or sort of mighty God. He is the almighty God, the one who has all power and the one who can and always will accomplish his promises. I think the question for us is if we also believe that's true in our lives, so when Jesus says, cast all your anxieties on me, do we really trust that he can carry that load? I mean, we, we, we all carry a lot. Can God really care for us? And when Jesus says, I will be with you to the end of the age, do we really feel that? Do we, do we constantly know God is with me even now in whatever joy or sorrow I'm experiencing? As Ray prayed, that, that's why we sing songs like it is well. well. So that if Satan is assaulting us or we're going through trial after trial after trial, we don't have to falter in our faith of God because we know Christ has shed his own blood for our souls. And so we can sing, it is well, regardless of the circumstances. We know that an almighty, sovereign and loving God cares for us. So we sing in loud voices. And that's the first step of, of this process. We see God's promise of what he will do. In the second act, God tells Abraham what he shall do. So you see that phrase right there in verse 9. As for you. That brings us to the second part, the sign of the covenant, which is circumcision. In verse 10, God says, This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male, every male among you shall be circumcised. Verse 12, he continues, he who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. And then he says that this covenant is to be kept throughout the generations as an everlasting covenant to always be done. So long as they are children of Abraham and this covenant is lasting. I think it's a good question to ask why circumcision and why eight days? Like God, God could have chosen this sign to be any number of things. But circumcision is a pretty specific thing that God chooses to use as the sign of this covenant. I think that is intentional. I think if you think about the promises that God has made to give him offspring, that back in Genesis 3, that it's the seed of the woman that will crush the head of the serpent. And Abram picks that up in Genesis 12. It'll be his offspring that will be these kings and rulers it would make sense that the covenant would be directly related to the way that promise will be kept. Circumcision would be a constant reminder uh, for all of the generations beyond Abraham, God has made us this promise. And we are going to know that this seed will come from somebody in our generations. It's a reminder of who God is and who they are in light of who God has called them to be. And I think the eighth day then also corresponds to a new creation. So back in Genesis 1, God creates the earth and everything in it in six days. And then the seventh day, God rests. And that's creation. But the Bible speaks consistently that there's going to be a day when there will be a new creation. Something new to come. And even right here, as God is making this promise to Abraham, at the very beginning of this promise, I think he's laying the groundwork for what will be a new creation. Christ will come, he will make all things new, he will redeem all things, and that we will dwell in this new creation in a perfect peace. And even while he's laying this groundwork for those who will be the children of the promise, and those who will be included in the offspring of Abraham, Notice that they have a responsibility as well. So Genesis 15 was very much a unilateral covenant. Actually, Rick was saying this this morning in family prayer. Genesis 15 was unilateral. God walks through the, the animals and it's he that will keep this covenant. That's true here as well. But in this case, there is something that Abraham is supposed to do also. He's, he's called to circumcise himself and his family. And that if they don't confirm the covenant, that they will be cut off from this promise. I don't think that play on words there is insignificant. If you remember back in Genesis 15, the Hebrew for what we would translate as to make a covenant, the Hebrew there is literally to cut a covenant. And so God is saying, if you do not cut this covenant with me, then you will be cut off from the promises and cut off from the people who are in this promise. That's why the animals are cut in half. That's why they are called to be circumcised. And so while God does open this door very wide, all those who are in Abraham's household are welcomed into this promise. There is also a boundary that's set that you must be circumcised. There's a limit to those who will be outside of this covenant. There's more to that we'll get to in a minute, but that's the first act or the second act. So verses one to eight, we see what God will do. Verses nine to 14, we saw what Abraham was expected to do. And in verse 15 to 21, we see what Sarai will be called to do. And that's where we get the clarification. Now, last Sunday, Daniel mentioned that coming out of the promise in Genesis 15, Genesis 16 shows that Abram and Sarai take a shortcut. They're stumbling, faith causes them to take matters into their own hands. They, they know they're supposed to have a son. So they try to do this with Abram getting with Sarai's servant, Hagar. And, and honestly, as we've read through this, I've kind of been inclined to give them the benefit of the doubt. Like they, they know that there's going to be a promised son. They haven't figured out where it's coming from. And so they're, he's just trying to take his best guess. He cries out in desperation in chapter 15 that Eleazar of Damascus will be his heir. In chapter 16, he follows Sarai's plan and has a child with Hagar. And both times, it shows that the waiting on God's promise causes them to stumble. Here in chapter 17, God makes the plan crystal clear. There is no doubt left as to how he's bringing about his promise. But before he does that, notice that he also gives Sarai a new name. This is unique. This is the only woman in the Bible who is given a new name. So right here, Sarai will now be called Sarah. Now, if you have your Bible in front of you, I think it's an interesting name change because the footnote says that both of those names mean princess. So God has changed Sarah's name from princess to princess. I think that is a little odd, but I think it's communicating similar to Abraham's name change, both authority and fruitfulness. Authority, you are no longer just a princess. You are my princess. You are the one through whom the kings will come from my promise. And the same with the fruitfulness. God is telling Abraham his plan to bless him with offspring and nations and land and kings will come through Sarah because God has chosen her. That's what verse 16 says I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. For 24 years, Abram has just been taking shots in the dark. Now God is leaving no doubt. The offspring I've promised you will not come out of Damascus. It will not come from your wife's servant. It will come from your very wife, Sarah. And like we would all expect, Abraham stands up and says, I knew it all along, God. I've been going that way the whole time. Not so much. Instinctively, Abraham's knee-jerk reaction is to fall on his face and laugh and then to offer up Ishmael in his place. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. I think he's struggling to believe that even this could happen, but God persists. No, but Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac, which is of course the third name given and the play on words of Abraham's laughing response to God's promise. God continues to clarify the promise in verse 19. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him this this lineage is starting we see the trajectory going to progress through Isaac and even though the promise will go through Isaac God still blesses Ishmael he too will be blessed with many offspring he too will be made into a nation and even though there is blessing there it's it's not Ishmael that God chooses to bring this promise to Abraham to fulfillment that promise will fall to Isaac. And just in case Abraham were to continue to doubt if there were a delay, God even gives him the time frame. This time next year Isaac will be born to Sarah. And that's the end of God's speech. God has spoken. He has been leading the conversation now for the past 21 verses. And in verse 22 he goes up from Abraham We've seen in the promise, the sign, the clarification, and now what will Abraham do in response? How will he respond? Point four, he responds with immediate and complete obedience. There's no delay between verses 22 and 23. As soon as God goes up, Abraham gets to work. He gathers all of the people from his household, and that very day he circumcises all of them. See, here we see he believes in God's promise. He believes that he is God. And so he does exactly what God commanded him to do. In a few chapters, Isaac will be born in chapter 21. And on the eighth day after his birth, he'll be circumcised. God, Abraham continuing to show trust in God's promise. See, this is the nature of this covenant. God has called Abraham to believe in his promises he calls him to faith. And then Abraham fulfills his part of the covenant by keeping the rights of the covenant. God inaugurates, and Abraham and his descendants confirm, which brings us to the question of, is Abraham then saved? Is, is he a part of the promise because he is doing something? Is he saved by keeping this covenant? And if he can, does that mean that we too are saved through the things that we do? I think the answer is is definitely no. I don't think that's what we're supposed to understand from this chapter or the way that God communicates with Abraham or Abraham's obedience. I think Abraham, just like us, is still a sinner in need of a savior. I think what Abraham needs is not just a, a circumcised flesh, but a circumcised heart. That language comes straight out of Deuteronomy chapter 30. It says that there is a circumcision of the heart that causes us to love God and to follow his commands. And Deuteronomy also says that that circumcised heart is a gift from God. So yes, Abraham is called to obedience and he acts in obedience, but we're chapters after he believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. See, God has already given him this circumcised heart and this circumcising of the flesh is a response to what God has already done. He is called to be obedient, but it's as a gift of God's grace already given. For all the ups and downs of Abraham's faith, and there will be more ups and downs in Abraham's life, Abraham does trust God. He doesn't always understand the plan of God. Oftentimes, he seems to be running headlong in the opposite direction of God's plan, but he trusts in God's promises. Both he and Sarah believe in God. That's what Hebrews 11 tells us, that by faith, Abraham believed, and by faith, Sarah both believed in God's promises and considered God faithful to give her power to conceive. The fruit of their faith is this life of obedience. Circumcision is then evidence of their faith. Now, I think this is the sticky part for most of us as Christians. I think oftentimes we can be kind of like pendulums that swing back and forth. So one week we are really high on obedience. We are really locked in on, I've got to be in my word. I've got to be in prayer. I've got to be in fellowship. And we, we do a lot of things and we sense that that then will cause us to, to receive God's favor. We, we think if I just do enough, God will favor me. And then the next week we, we realize, okay, maybe that, that wasn't quite right. And so we swing to the other side where we, we maybe overemphasize the grace of God. God is going to be gracious to me no matter how much of a sinner I am, which is true. And yet we say, okay, well, because of that, I'm, I'm not going to really fight my sin. I don't really need to put it to death. I don't need to try to kill sin. I just can trust that God is going to be gracious to me. And I'll just keep living the way that it really suits my pleasures. This is what Martin Luther described as being like the drunk man that gets on a horse and falls off and then gets back up and falls off the other side. I think a good question for us then is where do you tend to land? Do you tend to be maybe more uh, of of somebody who's obedience-driven or somebody maybe who's more grace-driven? Both of those things in and of themselves aren't bad. But if we overbalance and imbalance these things, it can get us into some rocky territory. And so if you do recognize, okay, I I am too far one way or the other, how do we correct? How, How do we put ourselves back on the right side of the horse? I think that comes through the mercy of God that we receive through the true son of Abraham, who is Jesus. Do you remember We went through the the songs of uh, the witnesses of the birth of Christ in our advent this past year. Do you remember in Mary's song, the last phrase? Mary sings, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. It's because God has shown us mercy in Christ that all of us who are Abraham's offspring receive this promise. It's because of Christ that we can say that God is God to us, for us. And that carries a lot of weight. But there's another side of that coin as well. It, so if you are here and, and you are not a Christian, you, you've not trusted in Jesus, then that means these promises then are not for you. Like those in Abraham's household who are not circumcised, you would be cut off from this promise. But that mercy that comes through Christ is offered to you freely, just as it is to all others. What we see is that God has already cut this covenant with you, that in Christ's death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his sitting on the throne, Jesus has come with the offer to deliver you from your sins if you trust in him. If you have not trusted in Christ before and have not received his mercy, today is the day. Trust in Christ to forgive you for your sins. So this is, this is chapter 17. There's many things that we should draw out of this chapter. We've, we see that God makes a, a sure and a perfect promise. He gives us the sign that we are to keep, that Abraham is to keep. He clarifies how this promise is going to come about, and then He calls Abraham to obedience, and we see that Abraham acts in obedience. Friends, as we yeah, as, as we have walked through this series, we've watched this promise continue to develop. And we will continue to develop as we walk forward further and further into Isaac, to Abraham's faith with Isaac. I think this is a challenge for us. Are we going to be found faithful to keeping God's promise, trusting that he is the one who is almighty over all things? We'll take a second now. Consider Christ. Consider his worthiness, his mercy that he's offered to us. Consider the promises that he's been faithful to keep. And I'll pray for us.